Welcome back to the Talking Points Summer Season Special. We hope you enjoy revisiting all of the gorgeous conversations with our Season 1 guests. Welcome to Talking Points, a ballet and dance podcast where we speak with some of the most extraordinary and famous dancers, artistic directors and choreographers. I'm your host, Claudia Lawson. We actually started this season with David McAllister, who had just stepped down as Artistic Director of the Australian Ballet. Today I'm speaking with David Hallberg, the brand new Artistic Director of the Australian Ballet. David was born in a small American town called Rapid City in South Dakota. He started dancing at nine years old after seeing Fred Astaire on the television, and he only started ballet when he was 13. But by 17, he was selected to do a year at the Paris Opera Ballet School before joining his dream company, ABT, the American Ballet Theatre. He rose swiftly through the ranks to principal within four years, and then he was the first American to ever be asked to be a principal with the Bolshoi Ballet, the Russian juggernaut that had previously only accepted Russian-trained dancers. In this wonderfully engaging interview, David talks about his love of dance, growing up in America, and the moment he was first named as a principal. But David also shares some of his darker moments. He talks about bullying and the injury that crippled him for over two years before finally returning to the stage and becoming the new artistic director of the Australian Ballet. When we spoke, David had just announced that due to COVID, the Australian Ballet won't be performing for the remainder of 2021. David, I guess I wanted to to take you back a little bit and ask you about where your love of dance first started. <laughs> My love of dance was from Fred Astaire. You know, I, I've, of course, went into this ballet career and I'm running a big ballet company, but it didn't start with a ballet dancer. Um, it started with one of the most lyrical, smooth, suave, dancers on the silver screen and he became my idol when i was about eight years old i saw him on tv i think something i I can't exactly remember where but i was transfixed and then did that translate into mom dad i want to do dance lessons (laughs) it translated into uh mom and dad i want to do that i actually (laughs) didn't know what that was but that actually was tap dancing ah that's right so yeah so um I didn't have tap shoes, so I taped nickels to the bottoms of my Sunday loafers and clicked away down the sidewalk and would lose nickels here and there. (laughs) And my parents bought me tap shoes and I went into tap class. I mean, that was around nine years old. And the obsession just, and the interest, it wasn't obsession at first, it was just interest. It grew and grew. And then I found ballet at 13 and had a fabulous teacher who... um, trained me really really well almost like a soldier and uh then ballet was it I knew it I mean 13 is quite late really to start ballet I mean you know generally thought of as quite late yeah no it was late and that's sort of what my teacher told me he said you're starting late you have a lot of catching up to do so if you are serious about this I'll catch you up but he sort of took no prisoners he never relented. He never really gave me positive feedback or positive reinforcement. And I actually thrived on it. I loved, I loved the 
the whip, you know, being cracked. And I loved just him asking for more and more and more. And, and that's something that carried me throughout my career as a dancer, that sort of feeling of pushing yourself to the limit in a way. So you were born in Rapid City, which is in South Dakota, mm-hmm. in the States. Did you train there or you mostly trained in Arizona? No, I mostly trained in Arizona. I moved around a bit when I was a kid and um, then landed, you know, my, my formative years, my teenage years in Arizona. And that's where I um, primarily danced. Hmm. I wanted to ask for if you could sort of set the scene for us, because I know in this country, and it's not so bad now, but perhaps when you were going through, you know, a lot of boys who danced when they were young got bullied and you know, it's really hard to persevere when that's happening um, in school. And so I just wondered if that's the case in the States and where, or in your experience. Um, Absolutely, it was the case. I still, um, any good Freudian therapist would say I still, you know, have childhood scars from, (laughs) from being bullied. And that's really the case. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was called every name in the book. You know, and as well, it wasn't just because I danced. It was because I was different. It's because I was a little bit effeminate. It's because I wasn't, you know, like a normal kid or a normal boy around the block kind of thing. And I've come to terms with sort of the experience it was, but it's also formed me into the person and the the, the dancer I became. But yeah, I was I was really bullied. And now, interestingly... I think because of my experience, I have no patience for, you know, minorities um, or, or young boys who want to dance or anything to be singled out and picked on or laughed at or made to feel lesser than. Uh, it really boils my blood when, uh, when those instances pop up. Um, and I'm very quick to, to shut them down. Yeah. So it sounds like those, that experience or those experiences then sort of made you more resolute or more resilient as you then went on to pursue your career. Yeah, well, it did. And also it made me, interestingly, it made me want to dance even more. And I, I have come across young guys who are being teased and they need advice and they're thinking about stopping dancing because they're being teased so much. And of course I, I, I say, you know, don't relent, but for me, it was never a question of like, should I stop dancing because I'm being teased about it? It was more and more my escapism and my, my reason for actually being and reason for getting through the hard times in my childhood. Incredible. So your career at the ABT or American Ballet Theatre is really, you know, I suppose quite well known. I mean, you started at 13. Can you take us through then how you get to ABT? ABT was always my dream. And I always wanted to, I don't know, be a principal dancer at ABT. It was like, it was like this major company in New York. And I just was, you know, that was the dream. Is that the sort of equivalent of, you know, a lot of Australian, you know, young dancers really dream of joining the Australian ballet? Is that the equivalent of ABT in the States? Yeah, very, very similar. So when when I was finishing my schooling, 
I also wanted to go away to a professional school because I trained with my teacher, um, Mr. Han is his name, in a very small school. I was the only boy. And I, I just, for my last year of high school, I wanted to go away to a big kind of professional school. So I said, well, why not try for one of the best and, go, and try and go to Paris Opera School? So I auditioned and I got in and I went for the year. And it was a bit of a repeat kind of childhood experience in that they were not nice to me. They, they kind of bullied me a bit. I think because I was, you know, I was this very friendly American and they were very unfriendly French. <laughs> and I, but I learned a lot during that year, but I was always, my, my sights were still set on ABT. So I went back to ABT and auditioned and I got in. Um, and so I went to ABT via Paris Opera. Um, but really, ABT was always my my goal when I was younger. Mm, it's really interesting to hear because not only did you travel to Paris and, and live in France, obviously, I mean, that's even quite unusual for, mm. I imagine, a kid who's, you know, training in Phoenix, Arizona, um, you know, we all know the statistics of, you know, <laughs> yeah. US or Americans that have passports. So I imagine that was quite, oh, huge. A, uh, quite well, listen, a decision. I mean, I will out myself and tell you that when I moved to Paris from Phoenix, I bought a year's worth of shampoo, conditioner and deodorant because I didn't think, I mean, why could you get shampoo and conditioner and deodorant in France, it's Mars. <laughs> and so I came, I came to this country that of course has shampoo and conditioner and deodorant, but as an American, you really have no concept of the unity of the world. And it's, it's not a sense of us and them. It's more just a sense of uh, naivete. And um, so it was a big deal for me to hop on a plane and leave home and, and you know, in my luggage, have a year's worth of shampoo and conditioner. <laughs> I love that. And obviously, I assume, you know, you probably didn't grow up learning French either. So that's yeah. also to cope with all the, the language Huge differences. Language Incredible. And so you rise through the ranks of ABT and then you are the first American to be named as a principal with the Bolshoi Ballet in Russia, which is, you know, classically known to have only accepted really mm. Russian-trained dancers up until that point. How did that come about? Um, well, uh, the, the director at the time who I knew kind of through the dance world, I had been to Moscow a couple of times and danced in galas and things. He was just taking over. I, I was in Moscow dancing with ABT on tour, and he took me to lunch and he said, I want you to join the Bolshoi as a principal. And I want you to be the first American principal of this company. I want to change the current. And I looked at him like he was crazy. I never thought that Bolshoi was even possible. So I thought long and hard about it. Actually, it wasn't an immediate yes, but I eventually accepted. And um, to his credit, he really had the vision and I, I went, up, went on the ride. And, it, of course, it was life-changing. Wow. And, I mean, what is it like to dance as a principal with the Bolshoi? What was that experience like? Lots of pressure. The Bolshoi is like 
you know, AFL here, rugby here, baseball in America. It's, it's, it's as a society, Russia views ballet dancers and Bolshoi dancers specifically in very high regard, which means there's a lot of pressure to uphold that kind of title in a way. And I found that, yes, there was that pressure. Yes, I needed to dance well. And this sort of goes against people's preconceived notions of Russians. I felt very welcome. People were very, very welcoming to me, the dancers, the administration at Bolshoi, and the audiences. So I have a very, very warm memories of my time at Bolshoi and the people that I came across. When you were named principal for both ABT and then again at the Bolshoi, was it everything that you, you know, those dreams that you'd had as a kid, was it everything that you dreamed? Did you have that sense of, you know, you'd made it? It's funny because when I was promoted to principal at ABT, that was my goal all the time. It was to be a principal there. And once it happened, I looked around and I sort of started to flounder because I didn't know what the next goal was. I was thinking, okay, now what? And that happens a lot of the times when, when dancers really aspire to be a certain thing and then they get it and they're like, okay, well, what now? Because I can't keep going up the ranks. I'm at the top ranks. So, you know, people can lose a bit of focus and hunger. But when I was invited to go to Bolshoi and I, I went and I sometimes took a look around and I thought this is beyond anything I ever imagined would happen. You know? Do you mean in terms of the standard or just the exposure or? In terms of the experience of being at such a, an iconic theater and company to hear the applause and the appreciation of audiences to just be there. You know, I'm like, I'm from a small little town in America. And I'd have moments and be like, how am I here? You know, how is this happening? There was no sense of expectation. There was no sense of entitlement. There was no sense of um, taking things for granted. Mm, So fascinating to hear. So then, of course, in your story, you have the injury. (laughs) Sure. Do you want to tell us Uh, about that? The injury. You know, um, (laughs) I was at Bolshoi and I was riding high. And I, in a nutshell, abused my greatest asset, and that was my my body. You know, as a dancer, your instrument is your body. And I wasn't taking care of it. I just was abusing it. And I started to have a pain in my foot, and I ignored it, and I ignored it, and I kept going. And then eventually, I couldn't dance anymore. I couldn't take off for a jump. I, I decided to have a sur- surgery in America. Uh, I had a torn ligament in my foot and the surgery was botched. And then a year later, I had to have another surgery to fix the first all in New York. And I was like reaching wit's end. I was like, is this the end of my career? I couldn't seem to get back on the horse or I couldn't even, I wasn't even feeling like I was making any progress in that regard. So I was watching it slip through my hands. I mean, you say those surgeries are a year apart. I mean, that sounds quick when you say it, but to live a year trying to rehab an injury, that's epic. And then to realize, Mm. yeah, and then to realize you have to go and do it all over again. 
And I was, you know, I mean, dancers are typically at, at the most, they're typically out for a year tops. And after a year, I was like, this is not, I can't even dance properly. And I, I knew um, how great the physio team at the Australian ballet was. And in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, this could be the way forward. It's either this or I'm done. Because I was going to ask, what took you to Melbourne? Like, how did you know that there's a good physio team at the Australian Ballet? Um, well, I had danced with um, the Australian Ballet before as a guest artist. And as well, I had met the head physio who sort of built this whole this whole department in Japan in a, in a gala. Uh, Sue Mays is her name. And I just knew through experience a bit by just, you know, having some massage or whatever, when I came as a, as a guest artist, but as well through the grapevine, I, I heard how, how great they were. And I just said, I'm going to buy a one-way ticket. I asked Sue if I could come down and I basically gave them an ultimatum. Now that I think about it, I said, you know, save me or my career is over. <laughs> <laughs> and so what you're just calling up David McAllister and being like, I'm coming I, down. I You've got to fix David the ankle. <laughs> Yeah, I did. And I said, you know, will you have me? And he said, we'll have you. And I went down and I, I shaved my head, shed the skin, got on a plane, didn't know when I was coming back. And wow. 14 months later, they saved me and got me back on stage. I mean, it's a huge amount of time to be rehabbing. Like, where is your headspace in this two years? Um, very dark, in a very, very dark place the darkest time of my life. Um, and honestly, it was this reemergence though. It was this rebirth. I, um, I just became a person. I became a human. I wasn't this kind of dancer that, pe- that, that I was defined by. Um, and I just worked from the ground up. Wow. It's interesting. Cause you said then when you got promoted to a principal with ABT, there's this moment of floundering because what's the goal now? Where's the dream? You know, you've achieved it. What, what drove you to come through that injury back to the stage? Like what, what, where's it, where was the motivation? How did you find that? You know, I've, I've been asked this question before and I actually can never answer it because I don't know what kept me going forward. I, is it just that you have no alternative in a way? Like, well, and I mean that that's in the, a really good question. Yeah. Potentially. But, you know, interestingly, I was asked during the injury to become a director of a company in the U.S. Were you? Can we ask which one? Uh, I won't divulge. But they, it, <laughs> it will remain nameless because I'm now a director okay. of a company that I love very much. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, I was asked to become a director of, of a ballet company during these dark days of the injury. And I said, no. So it's not like I didn't have any other options. Something just kept me going. Um, it was like every day I said one foot in front of the other. And that's really, really what I would tell myself. I just felt like there was unfinished business. It's interesting that you say that. I, I do want to ask another question because I've heard you say in another interview that part of the other things that brought you to Melbourne included love. And I wondered if that um, was an element of you coming out of that injury and rehabbing. Um, wow, you've done your research. That's great. 
Um, well, it was love at the time. Yes. We are no longer together, but I've always, uh, <laughs> I've always had a love affair with Australia and Australians. <laughs> so I think that's partially maybe what brought me here for the rehab because this person, um, was advocating for, um, not opportunistically, but advocating for me to come to the best physio team in the world. So it, maybe it was a mix of, of a couple of things. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. So you rehab, you make it back on the stage. So was artistic directorship always in the back of your mind? Like how did that come to be, you know, the next step in, in your career? You know, an artistic directorship wasn't always on my radar in a way. It wasn't always really like the plan. I knew I wanted to stay in the dance world, but I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to choreograph. And I always knew like maybe I would lead a certain way, but it wasn't until David McAllister shared with me the news that he was leaving. And he also admitted that he felt that I was, you know, the right person to take the job. First of all, I was floored. He even said that it was not on my radar. I wasn't vying for, you know, the job, but it planted the seed and then obviously push came to shove. And um, here I am living in Melbourne. <laughs> Which is actually a really similar story to David McAllister because he had just retired as a principal with the Aussie Ballet. And at that time, nobody expected him to take on the artistic directorship. Yeah, very true. I mean, you know, he was he was the underdog. He'll be the first to admit. And look at look at the heights. He uh, twenty years. Yeah. Well, look at the shoes I have. To <laughs> is it strange going from the stage to now running a company? You know, it is strange. I mean, there's no two ways about it. I don't, I don't miss the stage. Um, I really feel like it was the right time for me to, you know, say goodbye to my performing career, but. There's so many different aspects to being a director and you, you will never be prepared for it until you're in the position. But for me, you know, I do have these driving forces and these inspirations and these ideas to, to, to lead this company that I love and respect so much. So it's a really exciting moment, you know, because I'm seven months in. I mean, I've barely sat down on the chair. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess for those young dancers, you know, in, in the throes of, you know, their RAD exams and all that syllabus work, can you tell us what you look for in a dancer on the stage? Like what do you, what's your aesthetic in terms of what you like to watch? It's interesting because I just spoke to the first year Court of Ballet members in the Australian Ballet. And we had a bit of a, you know, a bit of a debrief. And I shared with them some memories of when I was a first year um, at ABT. And, and, um, and then we got onto the subject of, of what I like in a dancer or what attracts me to a dancer. And interestingly, it has nothing to do with feet, legs line, turns, jumps. It has everything to do with individuality and a unique drive to be the artist that whomever wants to be. And I'm not looking for this dated 
in, in my opinion, cookie cutter ideal mm-hmm. of what a ballet dancer needs to be or needs to look mm-hmm. like. For me, it's really about individuality and diversity and a definition that they define. And ballet really tends to breed dancers to just be obedient. As I said, when I was training, I was, I was like a soldier and I loved it. I loved being obedient. But now I take a look around and I think I'm not, I don't want obedient dancers in the Australian ballet. Of course, we're a team, we're a collective, we work together, but I want individuals. I want artists that um, question and push themselves further and do things their way. Um, That's what really interests me. Is there any part of you that when you watch them wishes you were still back on the stage? There's a part of me that wishes I would have taken the advice that I had just given them. (laughs) (laughs) Although many would view you as the rebel, you know, as the guy who, you know, joined the Bolshoi. And so that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess I, you know, I've always loved to swim up current, but I, I played the prince a lot in my career. And there's more to me than the prince, I think. And I think if I were to live be at their age again, I would think, no, I, I want to do things, you know, my own way, not the way ballet tells me to do, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And so just, I guess, on that, looking back, what, like, do you have any regrets from your career as a dancer? Um, I do. And interestingly, that's um, another question that some of the first year Court of Ballet members asked me. <laughs> you know, one of my regrets was, I, I didn't pursue my own voice as much as I would have liked. And what I mean by that is, yes, I went to the Bolshoi. Yes, I, I danced in the major opera houses. I was afforded these amazing opportunities. But there's a different side of me as an artist that's a bit darker and a bit, I don't know, pushes the limits a bit more, a bit more avant-garde that I just, I didn't tap into as much as I would have liked. Not to say I wasn't fulfilled because I was really fulfilled by dancing in the Bolshoi, but everyone is multifaceted and, and there's a part of me that, that I didn't tap into enough. Do you think that you'll then tap into that as an artistic director? I mean, now that you get to curate programs, do you think it will see that? You know, it takes courage. And I think maybe I didn't have the courage um, in my dancing career to really dive in deep with that. And I need to have the courage as an artistic director to know or have the confidence that what I'm presenting, what I'm giving the dancers to dance, what I'm giving the audiences to watch is worthwhile and is important and is worth seeing. Even if it's not you know, meeting the perfect box office projection or whether it's meeting, you know, the success and the popularity of certain works like Swan Lake, Super Beauty, and Roman Juliet. But it does take courage. Yeah. I think especially as a new artistic director, it's almost like you need to spend or there's a there's a sense that you need to, you know, consolidate for the first couple of years and show you can run the company. And then it's like, oh, now I can branch out. But to have that courage early, I agree. It takes a real mm-hmm. person of, who can yeah. take a risk. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've taken the, the stance that 
I'm not here to just completely turn everything around and sort of reinvent the Australian ballet. No, this will take time. And incrementally, I'll chip away at what my vision is for the company. It cannot happen in one year. Especially a year where you're half not on the stage. (laughs) Especially a year where I, uh, you know, I can barely program anything because of the pandemic. But it takes time, you know. It takes patience. Well, we are, you know, Australia is so excited to see what you bring. And, um, you know, I wish you all the best with that courage. um, It's exciting. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great chatting. You too, David. It's actually been a really real pleasure. And um, so thank you so much. Thank you. It's really great to be in the country and uh, living as a Melbourneian, living as an Australian. <laughs> I've taken to, to this city that I'm living in. I have a bike. I bike to work. I over-caffeinate. You know, I, I'm, I think I'm a, becoming a true Melbourne. Oh, so good to hear. I'm so um, pleased that you're thriving here. And um, Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank David. You. All right. See ya. Since we spoke, David is working to launch the 2022 season for the Australian Ballet. If you'd like to read more about David's life, his autobiography is called A Body of Work, Dancing to the Edge and Back. For Australian ballet updates, you can find them on Instagram at OzBallet. And to continue to follow all of David's adventures, you'll also find him on Instagram at David Holberg Official. David and I recorded remotely, with David dialing in from Melbourne, the land of the Coolan people, to which we pay our greatest respects. Talking Points is taking a short break, but because of the overwhelming response, thank you so much, we will be back for a new season very soon. In the meantime, if you loved our podcast, we'd love if you could give us five stars and follow or subscribe to be notified for when season two arrives. As this is our last episode of season one, we wanted to give a shout out to Ballet Without Borders. Ballet Without Borders is an Australian non-for-profit who provide all children with the opportunity to learn to dance. They work with public schools, low socioeconomic areas and community groups to arrange classes, teachers, scholarships and tuition so that no student misses out. They're always on the lookout for teachers, for venues and organisations to work with and also students that would love to learn to dance. To find out more, you can find them on Instagram at Ballet Without Borders. Your host and producer is me, Claudia Lawson, additional production by Penelope Ford, with editing and sound production by Martin Peralta. And for the latest in all things dance, head to fjordreview.com.